0: This week we're going to talk about editing, specifically editing video. So I've got a very professional, high-end, better than me video editor on here. This is Thomas Grove Carter. Hey Thomas. Hey, how are you doing? Great. I'm really glad to talk to you cuz the work that I've seen that you've produced is phenomenal and it's the kind of work that, you know, I think myself and anybody listening aspires to do. And so that's, you know, you're exactly the voice I want to hear when I want to learn how to both get better with my editing or just kind of polish up some rough ends. Or I I hope at some point we'll get into some nitty gritty, challenging technical details about high end editing production. But anybody listening that doesn't do that or doesn't plan to have a career doing that, I beg you to stick with it and, and listen through because, I mean, I've always found that I learned the most. When somebody's talking like one or two levels above what I'm currently doing, so you know, I'm sure Tom's. There's plenty of stuff that you work within that I just I don't have to deal with it. I may not even know the lingo for it, but hearing you go through it is so helpful for me and just like pulling me forward to produce higher end work and be more comfortable in more challenging working environments. So that's the goal. Great. And great way to start is to just introduce you as well. You're an editor at Trim Editing, which is a editing studio in East London. You do high end music videos, commercials, films, and I mean, these are commercials and music videos, and I mean, they're the ones that you've probably seen, listener. Uh, I recognized a bunch of Thomas's work as soon as I saw it, which is really exciting. And I mean, Thomas, could you tell me a little bit more about the details of what you do and how you got into it?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, like you said, we cut trim editing here, we cut music videos, commercials, and, yeah, so we're working with agencies and directors primarily to, you know, to get the best work for them. I started in it, like a lot of editors, actually just getting into it from doing music videos initially. That's how a lot of editors start, because I went to film school and people I worked with were directing. Well, I initially wanted to direct as well, but then found editing was the thing I was best at yeah and then people start making their own music videos and everyone's got a friend in a band so you get to make a music video for them and then I went and got a job as a runner in London and met someone who saw some of the work I was doing through a connection and gave me a job as a runner at his company and then he started to give me music video work Uh, and that's it's a really strange path because I'd say if I looked back sort of 10-15 years ago it's not I wasn't really aiming to be anywhere. I just kind of took opportunities that came up, which is always a bit of advice I've got for people. I, obviously, you need to sort of strive for things and strive to do the best and do the best stuff. But this isn't exactly where I planned to be. But looking back, I can totally see how how that all led here. And then, yeah, about six years ago, I moved to Trim, approached me and got me to join here. So about six years ago, I joined Trim. And Trim's one of the highest highest end offline edit houses in London there's only a few big players here and and we're one of them and yeah the guys here are just doing incredible work and so I couldn't turn down the opportunity to join what they've built here is a really amazing creative environment where you know we are doing commercials but we're also doing music videos and we're working with really incredible directors and yeah yeah just trying to get people the you know, the best result we can do in the most
0: creative way possible. So it's come full circle that you started doing music videos and now you're back to doing music videos.
1: I was just going to say the ratio has shifted. Uh, When I first started out, I was doing every music video I possibly could. I was probably doing one a week when I first started. I think the first two years I maybe did 33 music videos a year or something. It was crazy. And now that's shifted to I probably only do three or four, maybe five music videos a year and it shifts in the direction of commercials. Yeah, I still love to do music videos because I get to work with new directors and work, you know, the directors I cut commercials with, I get to do music videos for them. But it's now it's less about doing it, you know, because it's for the job. It's more like if I love the idea and I love the artist or something like that.
0: Yeah. The last episode of this show, we were talking about kind of the independent filmmaker route where, uh, you know, you... Go and be a one-man band, and that's the plan. Like you, you stay doing things yourself, and that's a lot of the time how I'm working, where I'm you know you know shoot, edit, and deliver, uh, just with me and my wife or, you know two-person business. Mm-hmm. And the differences of that, and then ending up on a path where you specialize. And I think that more and more, I think everybody is starting off expecting to do it all themselves. Like that's, I think, become kind of the standard for for getting into the industry. Not not for everybody, but it's much more common where it's like, look, I have an iPhone that can do most of this. I'm gonna just try it and start experimenting start making my own things, and then eventually you find something that you specialize in. Did you at some point did you think you were gonna be doing it all yourself?
1: I think because i because I went to film school i I was always working in groups with directors that you know everyone was in their different roles, so I think I was kind of I kind of came up through a route where you know I was working in the expected way not a one man band type thing but I think you know at the time I was coming up was around the time that Final Cut was uh, you know the sort of classic version of Final Cut was on the rise so I was using that in my bedroom to cut music videos when I was running in the day at post houses I was cutting music videos in my bedroom so I did massively benefit from doing all that kind of stuff on my own and having that time to mess around I think and one thing I'd say, actually, you find now is that most directors who come and work with us, most directors I work with, can edit in some way. It feels like everyone, anyone who's getting into filmmaking in any sense, can edit, even if they are specialising as directors. Just because they've had to cut their own things, you know, now and then.
0: Yeah, when well, they cut their teeth.
1: Yeah, which which is really good and sometimes really challenging because sometimes if you're working with someone for the first time, they'll want to they want you to edit the way that they would have edited it you know, structuring the edit process, whether it's rushing to get an assembly together rather than sitting and selecting everything. Uh, so it can be quite tricky sometimes to um, work with the director for the first time who's used to editing their own stuff and not used to working with an editor.
0: Well, my favorite thing to do on the show is always assign outside homework. So uh, when you're when you're done with this show or even right now, I, I'd recommend to check out some of Thomas's videos. I'll put the links in the show notes where you, you walk through a bit of your workflow because it's Really helpful to see the different methods that you use and see how, especially see how Final Cut can be really optimized and used the way that it's intended. Uh, you know something I like about the stuff that you're you're teaching and when you're you know giving lectures or doing your demos is that you are really leaning into what Final Cut wants you to do, as opposed to you know, kind of trying to hack around it or make it behave like Avid or Premiere. It um, You let Final Cut be itself. And that really, helped, which the thing that it does, excels most at is speed. So that that's really interesting. Like watching your, your demos, and I, I think everybody should, because there's something you're going to learn from it, is they're so incredibly fast. And they're doing like really complicated projects and you're just blasting through them.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, actually. The journey to kind of using Final Cut 10 myself and even using it here at the company we're um we don't have any kind of mandate about what editors need to use you could use premiere avid resolve or final cut whatever you want to use but over the years we've kind of got to the point now where about 90% of the editors are using final cut just because people prefer it it's one quite funny thing is when i first joined the company no one else was using it i kind of brought it into the company a little bit everyone was a little bit skeptical but it kind of as people see you working with it and seeing what you can do what you can do quickly and what it allows you to how it allows to free you up creatively people slowly come around to it i think that's one of the biggest hurdles when people are trying to learn new creative professional software is that you don't really have time to learn new stuff cuz you're mm-hmm. you know you're working you're being a professional and i think it's only by seeing other people using things that you uh, that you can come around to stuff like that because I think when you open a program like Final Cut if you're used to Final Cut Seven or Premiere or Avid it it feels all everything feels backwards and it feels wrong it takes time time with it for it actually to click but then once it clicks you're just yeah you're just flying with it
0: yeah absolutely I'm, I've been trapped in that world with photography for a while where Lightroom is the backbone of everything that I do I mean I I really like Lightroom there's a lot of things that are incredibly powerful about it and. I'm not that dissatisfied with it but at the same time I know what Capture One can do and when uh whenever I've been on like commercial shoots where they have a proper like image tech that is sitting at the he just sits at the computer all day watches the files come in and you're, you're shooting tethered they are 100% of the time using Capture One but I just haven't had the time to to really drill down and learn like okay could this Replace Lightroom for me? Could it become my new everyday software? And there's these little tools that I know exist in it, but making that jump to invest the time to figure out whether it's for me or not, it's just, it's been so challenging that I haven't been able to. And I can absolutely see how that happens in the world of video. I made the jump, what was it now? It was maybe two years ago that I jumped back to Final Cut. So I had been on Final Cut for quite a while. In the seven days, I came with it when 10 came out, used it for a while and why did I, it's been so long I don't remember why I went back to Premiere, but I did for a few years. I
1: think when it first came out, there was a, you know, there's just a general thing that they'd messed up Final Cut and it was, you know, Premiere was the way to go. I think people felt that it'd been, they'd completely abandoned pro stuff. So I think even if people, I'm not saying this is what happened to you, but a lot of people just sort of went with what they heard or, you know, and it it wasn't ready in the first year when it was out, it was, It was slightly too early. So one really interesting thing actually is with assistants here, because the assistants are just, they're assigned to assist the different editors to load their projects to work with them. They don't get to choose what the editor's editing in. And a lot of the assistants who come here to begin with are you know well versed in old Final Cut and in Avid. And what was funny is seeing people sort of grumble a little bit and complain about having to use Final Cut and then suddenly I'd see someone doing their own personal project, one of the assistants, and they'd be doing it in final cut. So even when even when they were kind of complaining about having to assist in it, they ended up using it in their own personal stuff anyway, because it was just so much faster and and easier to use and nicer to use.
0: Yeah. I mean that's what really brought me back was seeing uh you know speed comparisons, both in terms of actual editing workflow and also uh render speeds, things like that. But I mean, I remember I was actually, because I was at the NAB event when Final Cut 10 was announced. So I was in the crowd where everybody was cheering and freaking out. It was really interesting. Oh, the Super Meat. Okay. Yeah. Everybody live was incredibly excited about it and was like, this is going to change the way we do everything. This is the, the you know the best thing ever. Then three months later, uh, you know, just a, after a little while, everybody kind of turned on it and turned sour on it. Yeah. But um, I think that promise that it made in that first presentation it eventually delivered. I think it just you know, maybe needed a little bit of time.
1: Yeah, I think when, when I first saw that, I saw like leaked videos that were kind of came out, and the first thing that really hooked me, and it was the, same, it was the first thing that hooked me when I um, started using it was the kind of click connections, audio being connected oh, to different yeah. video clips or different points of video clips. Yeah. You know, a footstep is connected where the footstep's happening, not arbitrarily or, or not disconnected. Uh, that was the first thing that really grabbed me and then I think once, you know, once there's one thing that grabs you and you're like, oh, I'm gonna try this out because this the little thing's cool. There's there's so many more things that that you suddenly realize because you, you don't know what you're missing until you're until you're using it. And it, it, I just wanted to go back to when you were talking about speed as well. There's all these amazing tests of renders and how it renders out five times faster or the playback is so smooth with, you know, high res four K footage and all kind of stuff like that compared to say Premiere on the same machine. And it's that is one part of it, but just the way the UI is built and the way the program is designed to work, that sort of the editing metaphor adds as much speed as the as the physical sort of power of it as well, I
0: think. Yeah. I think if you are in Premiere and you start moving as quickly as you can in Final Cut, it's much easier to break everything. Like you can if you kind of just are, are quickly like powering through, you're like, oh, I just need to take 10 seconds off this this video and you quickly go through and make a bunch of changes, you can go back and play back, and you realize, like, oh, now I've misaligned a few clips, something fell apart somewhere, and I need to track it down and repair it. Whereas in Final Cut, it's much better at keeping up with what you're doing.
1: Yeah, one thing as well is it, it is that we find working in a company here is how scalable it is. We're... Um I often work on a MacBook Pro and we have like LG 5Ks and you come in and dock your Mac in the room and it runs the whole suite. But then we've also got some edit suites that have got 5K iMacs or iMac Pros or, and some old Mac Pros. And whether you're like, you know, running a 4K sequence at ProRes 444 or you're, you know, just running it even occasionally on a MacBook at home, it, it works. You know, the render speeds are going to be different but it'll play back everything and it works and you can kind of you can just sort of pick it up and take it into any situation. Yeah, which we found really really beneficial.
0: Well, let's keep a, a note of that and circle back to the tech stuff cuz I want to start off start off a little bit simpler and and then, you know, get into the deeper end. But mm-hmm. just in terms of the actual process of going through video, finding good parts and arranging them. Uh, I mean, what are some of the things that you see cuz you must just watch YouTube and watch amateur created content all the time. What are things that you commonly see that people could be doing much better just in terms of like what the final results are regardless of software?
1: Yeah, and it's quite hard to sometimes, you know, I watch a lot of YouTubers and a lot of YouTube and it's I'm kind of in awe of what everyone's doing and putting <laughs> putting stuff out so quickly and at such high quality. I've kind of got the luxury of, you know, having a week or two on a job to sit there and really digest everything, but it's actually amazing what what people are able to do. But just sort of general some general thoughts that i mean yeah this is editing this is not this is the thing i always like to separate out as well there's editing is not the program you're using at all it's the you know it's the skill of putting these two shots together or knowing how to evoke an emotion and stuff and and then the tool is the thing that helps you get that editing done so just from a general editing point of view i always start by you just have to watch everything because i generally don't like being on set it's really nice to disconnect yourself from what happened on set. If it took them four hours to set up a boom in the rain and get this amazing shot, I don't want to be, I don't want to feel the emotional drag to use that shot. I want to look at it and go, this shot's not very good. The performance isn't good. I'm not using it. So actually it's very good for me not to be on set. Obviously sometimes I have to be, you know, if there's time pressure or if it's a very technical job where that it might be required that I'm on set. So Because you're disconnected from set, you really need to digest all the rushes. So when a director asks, this is specifically working with directors as well. When a director or an agency asks you, like, "Is this the best shot?" and you can kind of confidently and honestly say, "Yeah," or "Yeah, but let's go and look at the other ones that I've got over here." So that time watching stuff through over and over, and really, um, yeah, just uh, yeah, digesting it basically. Because a lot of times I go into an edit not knowing exactly what I'm going to do. I don't know exactly if we're going to use this shot or that shot yet, but in watch, it's in watching things over and over that you begin to get ideas. Uh, oh yeah, maybe that shot could work with this, or maybe we can do this, or this represents that. So I think, yeah, spending the time to organize stuff well initially, whether it's you or an assistant, so you know how to get to something, and then actually... Pouring over it and selecting it down and down and kind of boiling it down to the best bits and that's always something that's really key. yeah
0: sometimes I feel like eighty percent of the time editing is actually just watching things, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even when it comes down to the end, even once your your edit is done, sometimes I feel like it can be such a, a slog to like watch this ten minute YouTube video again. yeah, like I've already seen this so many times, but this is my new final edit, and if I don't watch it from beginning to end, I'm going to miss something. And there's some bug is going to end up going live. And I just need to watch this whole thing again. And you spend so long just reviewing footage like that. It's yeah, something you may not expect before you start doing it.
1: And another thing is even once you've selected and you've put your assembly together, or even if you've got the whole edit together, sometimes it's really good to go back and Reselect or rewatch at least rewatch the selects, but maybe rewatch beyond the selects. You know the stuff you didn't select because mm. suddenly you've built the edit and now you know what needs to go in there, or you know what you're using things for. And you might look at footage in a different way and think, um, "Oh, actually, so I could use this something I disregarded as as not a good shot or not a good moment." You can you can now use that
0: in the edit. Well, I'm sure the kinds of projects that you work on don't generally require really fast turnaround. Like you, I, I doubt you do a lot of same day edits. But do you? like, do, or, or have you tried doing personal projects where you're just trying to begin and end a project as fast as you possibly can?
1: I think same day probably doesn't really happen, but occasionally it depends what the job is. I mean, on music videos, they often want, just because of scheduling, they want the full music video within a week. You know, even if they've shot 20 hours of rushes or something, that happens quite a bit. It's normally, if we're doing something quick turnaround, it's normally because someone has promised to show it to a client or an agency or promised to show something at a certain time.
0: It's not because it's going to air. Because that's the most incredible thing to me is the the YouTubers that are able to pull out great edits that quickly. I mean, obviously, we all watch Casey Neistat. And just seeing some of the times where there's just a really well-crafted story and you know that that had to happen in about three hours maybe four hours in the middle of the night (laughs) and then it was released without like I don't even know how he's able to watch it enough times to not have just more mistakes because I know if if I'm working that quickly I just I miss things and I like there's little glitches here and there the color grades don't match or whatever.
1: Yeah with someone like Casey Neistat it's amazing because I think that's a situation where actually I don't know whether he does have an editor or not now but that's a situation where it may be better to be working on your own. I'm sure when he's shooting himself, he he know he's kind of already self-editing as he's going. I imagine.
0: Yeah, he's but yeah. he's talked about it, his process a few times, and he has gone back and forth occasionally using editors. But that's so much of it. I mean, this is something for for people that aren't in your situation, Thomas. Is uh, shooting for the edit is incredibly powerful and important, and. If you want to do quick turnaround, like, so for example, I edit my Instagram stories, right? Like I try to treat them like little micro vlogs. I absolutely am like shooting them in a way that they're going to get posted so that the edit is just as simple as possible. Like if I, if I have a take that doesn't work, I delete it on the spot instead of okay. waiting till later that I'm going to review it. And when you're working in like a vlogging style like something that needs to move pretty quickly. If you if you don't have that kind of preparation, it's really going to slow you down. Like even another good example is for you know, say tech style YouTube videos, like talking head YouTube videos, when you're delivering lines, when you're recording your A roll, which can be the hardest part. You're just you're just talking and talking and talking. I find it the the only way I'm able to edit those quickly is by making sure that my last take is always the take I will use. Okay. I try to never do additional takes that seem like they're going to go beyond because then I have to review everything I shot in the whole day. Like if I kind of break that rule, now I need to start watching everything. Whereas if I know like, look, on the spot, I'm making the decision. Am I going to use this take? No, then I'll do another one. And then I I commit to the final take. Then during the edit, it's so much easier to go back through and just always take the last edit unless something Really goes wrong. Occasionally, I've had to go back, but you know, generally, I found that rule to really speed things up.
1: Yeah, I think you just have to. That's you know, you have to work that way when it's such a quick turnaround and when that kind of work. And there's something like going back to Casey and Istar as well. There's something really amazing that comes from that immediacy as well. I think you know, he's created as someone like that, just using an example, has created a style that feels really fresh, and it's it's probably half you know part a consequence of the way he's working as well it being that quick turnaround you're having to be really confident in your decisions and which is something sometimes you know i have the luxury of having even if it feels like a tight turnaround i've got a week to edit a music video but sometimes it's really good just to throw things down on the timeline and not get bogged down in right what's my first shot going to be and that would be another sort of general editing tip sometimes you just You've just got to get stuff down because the like the the scariest thing is just like an empty timeline and the expectation of what it's <laughs> yeah. of, of this brilliant video that you're going to have to make A blank canvas. Yeah, sometimes you just need to just get some stuff down, even if it's not the right take or not the exact right angle. Just get them down and get things. You can always go back. It's not you know we're not cutting with film and having to physically cut bits of film and stick them together. So. The workload for, for doing this stuff and trying and experimenting is, is
0: fairly it's easy to do. It's non-destructive. If I can just kiss Casey Neistat's ass for a few more seconds. <laughs> Something I, I I tweeted about and I never I never got around to talking about it anywhere else, is that I, I really feel like he will be remembered. And maybe, maybe we'll forget, but he will become one of the more influential filmmakers, period, from from this. Time from this era, and even in ways that like we don't necessarily realize, but that he was just doing this. He was just putting it out day after day. Gradually, got seen more and more. But like, even if everybody in the world isn't watching Casey Neistat, I can go speak to any other filmmaker, and they're aware of what he's doing. And they, we all know what that language of how he's filming and how he's editing that speaks to this generation in a really powerful way. Like it it conveys a lot of honesty, you know, whether or not he, it's, and it's not a comment on like Casey Neistat's a super honest guy. I'm just saying that if you shoot and edit the way he does, it comes across, it comes across as much more authentic and like you mean what you say and you're not polishing things quite as much and it gives it this really raw energy and, you know, just this kind of modern punk rock feel that I think is going to permeate through all filmmaking I, I, I think we're going to remember it and you know you can't necessarily give him all the credit because he's copying from everybody around him I think he just is is going to be the one that really brought it all together in a way that I think we'll be able to look back and identify like oh yeah that I, we can see where Casey spread through everyone I mean especially all the young filmmakers right now that are watching his channel and they grow up to apply things that they've learned from him.
1: Yeah there's a lot of um there's a lot of young directors who are doing music videos and then sort of breaking their way into commercials and other types of films that you you can feel that different style and different approach to things people aren't afraid to I think there's a bigger there's a greater number of people who aren't who didn't come through film school and things like that which I think is great it's kind of you know the democratisation of of filmmaking and and with the tools becoming te- cheaper and access to things becoming easier so you get a lot more people who who started working in their bedrooms doing stuff themselves and i don't use that as a derogatory term because i did the same and and i think it's really interesting as a as a professional editor to kind of keep yourself open to to that kind of stuff because you might scoff at someone and say oh well no we need to uh you know we can't cut from this shot to this shot because it's not a good match or whatever but people are doing this there's techniques and stuff that do just work Yeah, and I think as an editor, it's you've always got to try and keep yourself open to ideas and actually not shut things down because, you know, half the time they do work, and you just look, uh, you can end up looking stupid
0: for fighting it. Another example of how that happened is with Spike Jones. So I was just reading the uh, Beastie Boys book autobiography, and uh, Spike Jones wrote a chapter about. Uh, There's a bunch of photography that he did with them, but it, they talk quite a bit about producing Sabotage as well. And, the, you know, that was the, the version of it at the time. Like, it was relatively very low budget, super DIY, all these ma- wigs and mustaches and turned into one of my favorite music videos of all time. And I think was also a very influential music video. Like, that, that became a thing for a while. Like, that sort of, uh, like, homemade feel, a little campy. But it, it, it's just like it's interesting how unexpected, again, yeah, DIY punk rocky production methods can kind of like spread through to the mainstream and become what higher end stuff is is inspired by. Yeah, and now and now Spike Jones is Spike Jones. So I'd still love to hear like what's something that like when you watch other people, are there are there any things that ever like stand out about like what I'm trying to get at is like what's an easy tip to give most people. Is there anything that like you see, like generally most people are kind of getting wrong when they first get into it, and I'll, maybe I'll go first because I have one on my mind. I think a lot of people early on, when they're when they're just starting and they're not super comfortable with editing yet, will be challenged in letting short shots hang a little long. When you watch, especially you know high school videos, like really when you're just figuring this out, or those self-produced business videos where everybody in the lunchroom gets together to wish so-and-so a happy birthday or, you know, is that they'll just be like an extra breath after what should be a much quicker moment. Um, and that, you know, what could be a one minute video can drift into, into two or three. And that like, it, it, it feels like one second that seems really short, at first, but sometimes you end up realizing like, oh, that's actually much too, that's twice as long as the shot needs to be. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I'd also say on the flip side of that is that a lot of people overcut. You know, if I'm thinking about music videos, right. it's very easy to think, oh, I'm just going to, you know, cut this stuff up and mash it together and see what happens because that's what you do you cut on the beat you cut to this you cut to this really quickly and there's there's a confidence in filmmaking when you've when you know when it's shot well and it's done really well to hold on a shot as well it's a slightly Mm -hmm. different point to what you're making because i agree with you like those shots that you're talking about you know they are they need to be shorter then but sometimes you know you don't have to cut there's yeah, having a having a long shot
0: can be so powerful. Yeah, I've done that thing where I put in a song and then I, like I'm really getting into the song and I start cutting to every beat and then I go back and watch it and I realize it's just like cut, 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 cut. and it, and it goes yeah. on a bit too long where there isn't any. It's not it's not a dynamic pacing and it can be really especially if your waveform has really obvious <laughs> spikes in it. You can just be like, oh yeah, I'll just like hit that every single time. Yeah, it's interesting
1: actually. When I'm editing a music video, I don't ever really. I don't ever really look at the waveform as a, as a guide for cutting. I would sort of just be listening to it. Mm-hmm. And it's something now that I do just sort of instinctively and naturally, but I really had to try hard at the beginning, was, was getting that change in pace and dynamic. And one tip I had from a, a sort of editing mentor of mine was that one easy thing you can do is every 20 or 30 seconds, just change the instrument that you're cutting to. Like, so if you've been cutting mm. on that drum beat, just cut to the bass line or the vocals or, you know, and that and that's a very easy way of just switching up and keeping it fresh so you don't... Because I think when the audience are expecting and cut and cut, if, if you can sort of literally tap the table every time and hit that cut as a viewer, it's nice when things are a bit more unexpected. So just changing the music, the instrumentation that you're editing on is um, it's a really
0: easy way of doing that. I'd also say in general, if you're not, if you're trying to be an editor and you don't like music or care about music, I think you're going to have a challenge. I mean, to me, music is so, even if there's not music in the video I'm working on, having that feeling of like what pacing means and what rhythm means is so, so powerful. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just, if you're just getting started out, you don't always have to cut to music, but I, I think understanding like what, how timing works in music is so helpful to just yeah. take, to kind of look up some of the basics of like how does music work how do how do things sound good uh, can really help you move along
1: yeah and also when i'm building up a music video edit i don't always begin with the music track i'll obviously be selecting you know if it's not a performance if it's not someone singing or performing the song i'll be selecting all the footage away from the music anyway but then even when i begin to create you know begin to build the edit up i might edit scenes just complete, completely mute like I'm trying to tell the story first you know what what are the bones of this story how do I you know I need this look and then that look and blah 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 and then I might lay that over the music and begin to feel how it works that's not hard and fast for all I'd sometimes sometimes I will start with the music but that sometimes you don't want to get music can often paper over cracks in, in your edit can sometimes make things work because the music just sort of whisks you along like you're sort of being rushed down a river and you don't realize that the picture edits fundamentally not working or not making sense.
0: I always think it's funny when I put any random song into an edit and show it to say the client or friends or whatever they'll so often they'll comment on like it's funny how the music like just really fits with it like it really works and it's random like it's not cut to it people just instantly like connect the two they make that connection themselves and then it can be challenging." To pull people away from the original song, if you show a, a demo edit with temp music, the client can get really attached to it and, th- and feel like that has to be the final. Yeah,
1: one. E- even if it's not the best song for it, yeah. and it just happened to be what you put in it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's even hard to drag yourself away as as the filmmaker as well to mm. to say, you know, I happen to put this track on it. And you instantly assume, like, oh, this is the track. This It works so well. Do you know one really interesting thing? I don't know if you... Do you know the... Um, do you ever watch the YouTuber Nerdwriter? Yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. He does a lot of a really amazing... You know, he, he's putting out a video kind of every two weeks, I suppose. But the, the quality is so high and they're great. But he, do, he did a really great one about... Uh, about scores in Marvel films and how they're yes I I think the underlying thing is that they're all basically the same and they're kind of fairly generic and it's because of temp music that you know in the edit you're often using the temp music and you might yeah we're going to take this track from Batman and we're just going to use that for the moment and then that become that dictates the pace of the edit and it goes through the whole process and people approve the scenes and then you know I don't know who makes the decision later on but Say it's an exec when they come to doing the score, they're like, "No, we need it to sound like it did." You know, so you end up with mm-hmm. unintentionally, you end up with knockoffs of yeah of other music, and it and it can all sound very bland.
0: Yeah, that was a great video. Uh, I'll definitely link that in the show notes, and, and everybody should watch that. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, a perfect fit for a video editing topic. These guys will give you all the music you need for all of your projects, and. All the sound effects you need, which is very, very useful. Do you know how time consuming it can be to collect all of the foley sound that you might need to use in a video? Swooshes and clinks and clacks and punches and footsteps and I don't I don't know what your video is about, but there's always a lot that can be enhanced by adding these sound effects and it can be very time consuming to capture them yourself. And especially to do it well. Um, I also often forget um, in my, my most recent big video project. I just, I honestly forgot to capture a lot of the sounds that I hoped I would. So now, what I'm going to be doing is going into the amazing collection of Epidemic Sound and using their professionally produced sound effects and inserting them into my next project. Not only that, the music is great. It's made by real musicians and, um, it doesn't sound cheesy, which is a big concern when it comes to licensing music. So you don't have to worry about that. If any of this sounds appealing and, um, it it probably does. If you happen to be listening to a show about video editing, this is probably something you need. Go to share.epidemicsound.com slash Stallman podcast and, uh please let them know that you came from the show by using that URL. Or if that's too much to type, just click the link in the show notes. Thank you again to Epidemic Sound for supporting the show. And something you said a moment ago, I, I just wanted to latch on to. When you talked about changing the edit to different instrumentation throughout a music video, I think that can apply in a lot of different ways, that, that general idea. It's the same when you're actually shooting as well to not get too attached to one focal length, for example, unless unless that's the point and something that you're trying to do. Yeah. But, you know, you can end up just sticking with like, well, I've got a 50 millimeter on my camera, so I'm just going to leave it there. But it's so helpful to just remember to just switch it up. Like sometimes even without purpose, uh, which I'm sure real filmmakers would kill me for, but I mean, it can just be really useful to, when you walk into any situation, like get a wide get a medium and get a close shot of, of everything that you ever shoot ever. And you'll probably thank yourself for it. And then the same in terms of in cutting as well, if you start getting hooked on, you know, like if you just kind of look at how long is each clip, like I see a lot here that are two seconds, like two seconds, two seconds, one second, two second, just kind of look at those little chunks and be willing to like insert. Okay. Maybe I need something to hold for five seconds here. Maybe I just need to break up the, these moments. Oh and this actually reminds me of another general or a general like mm, mistake if, if you can call it that that I see on YouTube is when you are showing a a longer clip of A roll like the, you're just speaking for a while showing your face then you cut away to B roll quickly say it's a 2 second cut, clip mm-hmm. then you cut back to your A roll then you cut back to one clip of B roll then back to A roll um it's much more effective to me I prefer to see it cut to a few B-roll in a row, like stay away from the speaker for a little bit of time instead of this constant jumping back and forth. It's just something that I find frustrating about those like just really quick cutaways that don't tie into a a more cohesive B-roll story.
1: Yeah, I think that kind of holds true for editing in general as well. You know, whether it's a music video where you've got performance and a narrative or whether it's just like a uh, sort of like a montage a commercial or music video, or whatever, sometimes, you know, if you're just having one shot, one shot, one shot, they, you, the viewer doesn't have time to kind of connect with the scene. It's sometimes really good to just group things together. Like, yeah, we, we're we going to have this whole bit of a scene. We won't have the singer and then one shot and then the singer and then another shot. Let's actually mm-hmm. tell a part of the story and, and then come back to the singer and give give them both, you know, their time. One thing I wanted just to say about cutting to the music or on the music is that, It seems like people want people often ask you to cut on the beat, and it's actually really effective to just to always cut just before or just after the beat. Often, like syncopated edits. Yeah, and it kind of because then what's more powerful than a cut on the beat is an action on the beat. So whether it's like someone's foot going down or like a look or an arm, you know, a dance move or something, it's way more satisfying as a viewer to have something on screen happening on the beat rather than a cut from one shot to another exactly on the beat especially if you're doing if you're editing dance or choreography if say someone is like you know pushing their arm out to a point that is part of a dance move and it that dance move happens on a beat the the hand punches out on a beat if you cut on the beat you, the viewer sort of doesn't see that bit of choreography they just you just see the cut so you need to cut before that impact happens or after
0: yeah there's a, a really great uh, youtube series where they broke down uh, again link in the show notes about breaking down different pop songs and uh they'll that was like a really common point that i took away as an editing thing and yeah i mean th- is syncopation in general like how many current pop songs you love the the thing that you love about them and may not realize is that that timing is just slightly off and you don't you don't know that it's happening when you listen to the song. It sounds like yeah, okay, everybody's playing in time. Everybody's these are real musicians. They know what they're doing. And then if you really pay attention, there'll be this either like dragging where like the beat is coming just a little little late, like a little off, or it's coming a little early, or it's unpredictable. And those things I, I just find so interesting. And yeah, that's it, a great idea to apply it to your visual edits as well.
1: Yeah, so it's quite an interesting time at the moment because. Um it feels like the industry is changing a lot you know there's more content than ever there's more places for content to be there's more content being created than ever before you know not just by YouTubes and people but brands obviously jumping on wanting to have stuff on instagram want to have you know there's so many places things can be and it's this kind of i feel a, a lot a lot of uh, editors and a lot of post companies are sort of living continuing as if things are just as they were you know all the money's in tv advertising or you know we're these highly specialized post houses that are geared towards delivering tv advertising or you know that kind of thing and actually the world is has already shifted on and it's something we're putting a lot of effort into at the moment here at trim is that we're trying to adapt to that new world and brands want immediate content they want stuff in 916 format and up until today... Meaning vertical. Yeah, vertical video, yeah. And I think up until today, you generally just take the advert and crop the sides off and, and try and make it fit as best you can, whereas, you know, at the moment we're trying to... Like the worst version of pan and scan. Yeah, it's terrible. And actually, you know, we're really trying to think about new and creative ways to deliver that and how we can offer new services to clients um like that. And we can be cutting those things. So I think it's... um it's actually really exciting, and it's an exciting, creative place to uh,
0: to find yourself, I think. So when you're just on the post end, are you connecting with the directors and cinematographers to kind of coordinate what they're shooting to fit best into the final output method? I mean, are they shooting for vertical? Uh,
1: there's a couple of jobs that we've had recently here where they've been exclusively shot for vertical, so they've literally swung the camera on its side and shot it that way around. I'd say a lot of things you know with commercial filmmaking it's not a long you know there's a 2 to 6 day shoot for example the crew is not the same crew that have worked you know for months and months like a feature film so sometimes the um the workflows get a little bit random so you don't always get things uh, as you'd want them i did a i did a nike job recently actually which i can i can send you a link to um where it was this it was for the world cup and they animated they did this animation on walls. So every frame of animation was 20 foot bit of graffiti pasted onto a wall. And it's this incredible job, but the director shot it. He shot everything square. And then, so when we had it for TV, we cropped it for Mm 16.9. And when we wanted to do social edits, we had that headroom to open up the frame rather than just cropping in on the left and right. We
0: were able to open the shot up top and bottom, um, which was really handy. Yeah, I've been meaning to do that more often. Uh, I've kind of set up my grids on my monitor. Like, so just on my small HD, you can just turn on guidelines. And I, I find it so helpful to do both of those, right? To see like, okay, here it is if it's a bit wider. Here it is if you go vertical, especially if you know that you, you may end up using it for that because it's it's more and more common. And you know, to go off on a this is a, this is a small rant, so boring that I feel like it shouldn't have to be said, but for some reason the conversation still happens. People still out there talk about and and argue about like ah oh, is is vertical video here to stay? Is it legitimate? Is it a real thing? Anybody having that conversation, you just missed the boat like it it isn't something that needs to be discussed. We don't need to figure it out. Vertical video already happened, it's already hugely significant, and if you're still debating whether it's gonna stay significant i mean it's just moving on without you because. This is how people use their phones. This is how people interact with content, and it isn't a better or worse situa- scenario at all. Like this isn't a zero sum game. Sometimes you need to make vertical videos because that's the format. I mean, if you think about it in terms of advertising, you know, like billboard advertising, there are just vertical billboards out there. And if you say like they're not legitimate because that's the form that they are, you, you, you're yeah, it's crazy the one. To me losing out
1: when i hear people say that now they i think people really just come across as closed minded and just i don't know not very open-minded at all it's crazy like i you know when you think about photography no one no one has any as far as i'm aware any preference of the right (laughs) way yeah
0: i only shoot portrait mode in vertical yeah
1: exactly it doesn't that's just not a thing and it's only because all of our tv screens have been well i mean they were square for a long time ish but, you know, it's only because everything's been that way around. I think really people push back as well because for a long time you get people shooting vertical for their home movies and putting it up on YouTube or on their TV. And, you know, the physical device is a is a landscape yep. device. So you get black bars. And people, I think that's maybe the thing that people are initially pushing back at. But if something is shot and designed to be portrait, <laughs> it's superior to having
0: a landscape thing when you're holding the device portrait it looks better it's um yeah yeah i get why the conversation happened then and it, also at that time less things were ever being watched in portrait like less apps supported portrait mode i mean it took forever to, for youtube yeah. to even support uh portrait playback um and but now that it is n- now it's really shifted so okay i get it if like 3 years ago it was frustrating for you to see the black bars which it still is for me for home video i i do think the home video default should still be vertical i think vertical is it is a more universally powerful format for video it's it's a, more of how we see the world uh you know if i was capturing something for the ages like something i want to remember and always be uh as watchable as possible yep. i would i would always go wide but um the, in practical day to day use the, you know just be aware that vertical is happening, whether you like it or not.
1: Also, when you, if you just pick your phone up and you've got a kid and they're running around, often it's really easy just to film it in portrait mode. And if you're sharing that with someone, you're going to send it to your partner or you're going to send it to your parents or something, you know, they're probably going to watch it on a phone as well. So there's actually no harm in it being vertical. And obviously it's a different conversation if you're thinking about how am I going to create this into a, an amazing
0: home movie. But With uh, Snapchat spectacles, it would record in a circle, and you whatever your phone was rotated to is how you were watching it. And uh, that experience of like, okay, tilt your phone and it moves the the camera might be a little too motion sickness for practical use, but I love square or circular formats as a capture medium where you can make the decision later. I would love to see a camera embrace that and go... You know, go one to one for its sensor ratio and mm-hmm. really have some onboard tools for just instantly switching back and forth and being really natively shooting vertical and square. Actually, yeah, I, this is another one of those. Like, I always have these tweets that I'm like, this is a better idea than Twitter deserves, and I need to talk about it more. <laughs> and that's one of them is like, vertical video needs some native cameras, and whoever gets there first, I think they will own a little chunk of market that will become more and more significant in the future.
1: Yeah. And I think from a, a professional point of view or an editing point of view, I guess, you know, we are as an editor, one of our jobs is to, you kind of want to, you know, you want to be helping people make the best thing. And sometimes if people, there was a time when shooting portrait wasn't the best thing, but you know, things have moved on, things are different. You need to be making content for this kind of stuff. And I mean, I think the people who moan about it now, they can shake their fist at vertical video, but at some point it'll hit their bottom line because they won't, someone else will do it vertically. And that's not to say it's a race yep. to the bottom, but I, th- I think there's amazing creativity that can be had in from creating stories like that. Even even if you're not, has something that hasn't been shot vertical, there's opportunities for kind of split screen, into interesting storytelling with text. You know, there's just a lot of things that can be done with it, and with that 15 second format uh, for Instagram stories, for example. Yeah,
0: it, it should. You should see it as an it's an opportunity, not a burden. Yeah, and if you need to be inspired for this, you can go back to episode 27 where Jesse Driftwood was on the show, and he uh, makes you know, basically real movies in Instagram stories. This episode is brought to you by the Camera Store. It is the best possibly named camera store in the world. I uh, I never stopped being amused that they were able to do that. And you know what? They even have the URL. So you should go to com. And if you live outside of Canada, that's fine. They're a Canadian camera store with great service. Don't worry about it. Just go check out their YouTube channel, which is awesome. They are great hosts that do very well-researched reviews of all the important cameras that come out. Uh, I, I absolutely love these guys. Their staff is fantastic. But if you happen to live in Canada, you are in luck because they ship all across Canada. Orders over $100 have free shipping, great service, great prices. I really love these guys. They've been awesome. They also help support the content that I produce. Um, They're often lending me gear for reviews or to test things out. I mean, it's so helpful to have a supportive local camera store. So if you're outside of Canada, the camera store is not your local camera store. Go to the local place and give them a high five from me. Tell them they're awesome. But if you're in Canada, the camera store is very worth shopping at. So go check them out, the camerastore.com Subscribe to them on YouTube. And thanks again to the camera store for supporting the show. I'd love to get, okay, we've we've talked about the easy stuff long enough. Let's Let's get a little more technical. Maybe you can talk over my head for a minute. I guess maybe start with hardware and tell me a bit about how you make it work being on a MacBook Pro most of the time, I mean, uh, especially when you're dealing with large footage. So something I've been looking into more and more is shooting more cinema cameras. Uh, I just did a shootout recently. No, it wasn't a shootout, but did some comparisons uh, shooting on Alexa Mini and a C200. So, you know, working with raw files, working with large ProRes files. These files are big. They're heavy. They're hard for a computer to deal with. How does that work for you on a on a laptop?
1: Yeah, so... In terms of hardware, where I work, we're kind of, we've always been quite flexible. And for want of a better term, using off the shelf equipment, we don't rely on capture cards in and out to to play out to a TV, we just use straight HDMI. And we've done this all the way since, you know, back since the Final Cut seven days, there's a tendency to think like, I'm a professional, so I'm going to set up my professional suite and spend X amount of money on all this hardware. But things are constantly changing. There's often a, a better thing comes along. So we've always been quite keen to have an HDTV that goes in an HDMI into your computer rather than these in-and-out cards, Blackmagic cards or you know Kona cards, because uh, they introduce lag as well. If the quickest way of working is with an HDMI connection. And then that kind of filters down to other things as well, like our current setup with our edit suites is a lot of them are set up for laptops. So... They're set up mainly for USB-C laptops, MacBook Pros. They've got an mm-hmm. LG monitor, and you can literally, you come in and you plug in one or two cables, and it runs the audio, it hooks you up to the screen, it hooks you up It hooks you up to the 5K display and to the 4K TV and all the sound and everything, and then, then you're off. What that means is that editors can, you can just take your laptop with you, the laptop you were working on at home or in another edit suite, you can just swing it into another room, and it's got all your plugins or your things on. Mm-hmm. So that's a real benefit. But then also, you know, I've got um, in my edit suite at the moment. I've also got an iMac Pro in the suite, and that is. But that's also USB C. So if I if we want to, we can move that machine into another room if we need it in another context, and we can quickly switch in a laptop and and a, a different display. So we we try and be quite light on our feet with with hardware rather than bogging ourselves down with, you know, a big bit of kit that's integrated into a table or, you
0: know. Well, so when you're chewing through some, like, heavy, when you're doing heavy lifting, what what is doing that? Like, when you need to, say, just do some big transcodes or export? So if, if we were doing
1: that, the you know, the big transcodes will be happening on a Mac Pro or on an iMac Pro.
0: And is, is that the,
1: the older generation of Mac Pro still? It is currently. We haven't got many of those. We're kind of trying to
0: phase them out. As opposed uh, to an iMac Pro is kind of what I'm wondering. It's still worth it to go back. Yeah,
1: to we, we've in the building. We've got we've currently got one iMac Pro, but yeah, we're we're kind of waiting to see what happens with with the Mac Pro with the new Mac, new new Mac Pro. Aren't we
0: all? Yeah, especially ATP is.
1: Yeah, but yeah, so we we would generally be using bigger machines to to do that kind of stuff. Often though, with the kind of work we do, there's a DIT on set
0: anyway who is. And can you just spell out DIT for anybody that doesn't know? <laughs> oh God. I can't even think what it is now. Digital, <laughs> digital. That's all I know. <laughs> technician, digital eye technician. Digital intermediate. Oh, that's really bad. I'm going to have to Google. That's terrible. They're the person that manages the the footage, basically. That's yeah. So they would easiest way to say it right? in the
1: same way. You know, you, in a traditional film workflow, you'd have a clapper loader who would be responsible for loading and uh, and loading the film and stuff like that. And a DIT is they're sort of somewhere between post and They're definitely more on the camera side, but they're kind of the bridge between that and post. Mm -hmm. So I think in America, they often set the frame rate on the camera and make sure that's set up. But, you know, when you pull a drive from a camera, they're the ones making three or four copies straight away. And they'll often make us, you know, transcodes on set as they're going.
0: Oh, that'd be nice. Lucky you. Well,
1: yeah. So often we get, you know, we get delivered a drive with the full res rushes plus, the um, proxy transcodes, which we can then use. Because, you know, while they're sat there, the computer on set can be chugging through that stuff.
0: Can I ask a boring detail um, what your proxies you work with? Are they like pro, like ProRes proxy format, or are they bigger?
1: We tend to use ProRes proxy as a codec because it looks great, and it's like a really small file size. Actually, I think the biggest reason is, you know, having a if you're doing a huge project, it's actually quite nice to have you know, not have so much media, so you can just, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just less media to lug around. Um, And ProRes Proxy, sometimes I get stuff transcoded to ProRes LT because it looks a little bit nicer, but definitely it's very hard to tell the difference in an edit, the difference between Proxy and LT. Mm -hmm. Something of what we would traditionally do is get it all transcoded to 1920, 1080, just HD, and we'd cut with that, and then if we needed to conform it, we can relink back to full frame size later. Recently, I've started requesting all my proxy transcodes to be at the native resolution, and that's just because I find it really handy. Even if it's going to a lot of work is delivering HD still these days, but it's really handy to be able to to be able to to know what pixels I've got to play with realistically. You know, if they've shot four or five K, I will cut with four or five K footage on a 1080 timeline. And then I can just zoom, you know, I can then do zoom ins or, you know, crop shots and it's still going to look great in the offline.
0: Do you know what those transcodes are happening on? Is it happening on a desktop as opposed to a laptop? Or is it also, because I mean, if they're doing it on set, do they have a laptop?
1: Yeah, no, they would, a DIT station, normally, they normally have like a big Pelly case. You open it up and inside they'll, they'll often be like a trash can Mac Pro. Mm-hmm. Or I've seen some where a peli case opens and there's like an iMac Pro mounted inside. Right, and and that I
0: love the look of. I've seen photos of that. It's cool.
1: And and that case often has like fans in it to cool everything, and it'll often have backup power supply in there and and then uh, drives as well. So yeah, it it wouldn't. I think on set it's generally unless it was like a really low budget music video where they weren't willing to pay for a DIT, I guess.
0: Well, so that's me. (laughs) So so what should I do? And so, yeah, I mean, so I'm looking at this, I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be shooting on a C200 anytime in the future, it shoots RAW, which are enormous files, I don't want to have to store those, so part of my workflow's definitely going to involve a transcode yeah. to some kind of ProRes 10 or 12-bit format. Have you have you worked at all with the external GPUs, like the new Blackmagic design options, or, or anything else out there?
1: Yeah, we've been playing with some, actually, here. One advantage of being trying to be quite light on our feet with hardware is that we're quite willing to switch things in and out and, and try things out. So at the moment, we've got one of the eGPU Pros that we're testing out. And that's just, we've got it in one of the edit suites because one of the owners of the company wanted to reduce his the amount he was carrying around with him on his backpack while he's cycling. So he went down to a 13-inch MacBook Pro. Um, and it's just hooked that up to the eGPU to give him a bit of extra extra boost. And it's, re- it's good. It's really sure. interesting. And the other great thing about it is that you can run... I've always been striving for like to have an edit suite where you could just plug one port into your Mac and that's it, it's docked and ready to go. And the eGPU kind of the dream the eGPU kind of allows that because you can you plug one thing into your computer and then the HDMI goes out the back of the eGPU. The there's loads of USB ports, so if you need to plug in like hub stuff and then also it'll drive the 5K monitor off that as well. So that uh, has been quite cool. That's just from a nerdy, you know, dream perspective rather than actually adding anything extra beyond that.
0: <laughs> Nerds can dream too. Yeah, I, I kind of, my dream is that where like if I'm at home, I can plug in and all of a sudden my workstation gets twice as powerful. Or, you know, if I throw something in a Peli case, it could be any GPUs so that I'm using the same machine anywhere I go. And if I need that extra boost, I can just plug it in. Uh, I, I would love to to get to that point someday. I haven't worked with the black magic's yet uh, from what i've seen it seems like they are the way to go like uh, because there's if um if macos ends up with nvidia support and you can you know do cuda optimization or whatever with final cut that seems like the the long-term dream but you know it seems like apple needs to i don't know they they're, they're not getting along yet so
1: no and i think there's something you can probably get greater sort of raw performance out of Bespoke eGPUs, but what I like about the Blackmagic one is one, it's it's absolutely silent. You know, it's so quiet. Yeah, yeah. that's one thing. That's really and appealing. and then the, all the I/O on it. It comes in one box. And it's got the US. It's got Thunderbolt three ports. It's got DisplayPort, HDMI, all that stuff. That's really great. At the moment, actually, I'm I've been using uh, i been using the latest MacBook Pro with a Vega graphics card.
0: Which Yeah, I'm jealous because I have the the pre Vega.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a bummer there <laughs> that they released uh they released that so soon after. Well,
0: I do get I get a lot of comments on the the YouTube video reviewing that MacBook. Uh, pe- people saying like, oh, aren't you so pissed that they released the Vega right after? And yeah, I mean personally, I, I you know I wish I had the best and the newest, f- absolutely. But I'm just glad to see the the support of the pro market. Like I would rather them be obsoleting the old ones by moving quickly because that's just the right way to do these things that like as new graphic card options come out they need to get them into computers as quickly as possible so i'd rather see apple have the right attitude about their pro hardware than you know personally me having missed out on one upgrade option
1: yeah i've got no idea why that actually came later i assume it's because that graphics card wasn't available or wasn't ready but um yeah, I think that's a really positive sign that I've seen recently, or that it feels like recently. That because I, I did have, um, I've passed it on to one of our assistants, but I did have a 2016 MacBook Pro, which I loved and it was great. And then I got this new one now, and it's a really great upgrade. But the sort of the changes that have happened, I mean, you know, I know the form factor is the same, the ports are the same, mm-hmm. the keyboard's the same for depending on how, whether you like it or not. For better but, or worse. Yeah. yeah, for better or worse. I've actually had... I actually quite like the feel of the keyboard, but and also I've never had any problems with it, but mm-hmm. I often have it docked in an edit suite, and I'm using an external keyboard anyway, so it's probably not a great... Right. Um, getting used great, to yeah. yeah. But it feels like, yeah, with this kind of graphics card in it, I don't know, it just... There's some... It feels like something... I guess because the iMac Pro came out in the middle of those two years, and then now the Mac Mini's come out, it does feel like there's... There's definitely a, a shift in the way they're approaching pros or, or what they're delivering, I think, which makes me kind of excited for the for the Mac Pro. I,
0: I am optimistic that we're coming into a new era of Apple Pro hardware. I, I, it, we already kind of did. I mean, when the iMac Pro came out, and uh, now with where the the Vega Mac Pro options are, like it, it, we got over a hump that we <laughs> we were kind of stuck in a rut for a little while, and I think we're starting to get into a much better place as, as far as options go, and. Yeah, once once there's a real Mac Pro a new uh, real modern Mac Pro out there, I think it's
1: it's going to be good. Yeah, and it's um it's interesting with something like Final if you if you're a Final Cut Pro user, it's quite hard to benchmark benchmark the different Apple machines against each other, I think, because the app is so well integrated with the hardware that it kind of it works so well on different machines. You know, yeah, you're going to get different render times, but like things yeah, it just works well on all Macs. So it's kind of hard to um to sort of quantify a lot of the differences. But the thing I've noticed with the with the Vega one is that things like stabilization, you know, like stabilizing footage, analyzing footage for, you know, optical flow when you've when you've speed changed, things like that, those kind of things are faster, noticeably faster. And it feels like it just gives you a little bit more headroom. Like I can I can definitely play back more raw stuff. Than, than if I wasn't using.
0: Can I ask you a question about stabilization? Anytime I go and, and reach for it, I feel like, okay, I just I really need just a little bit on this because there's a bit too much shake to the shot. I apply it, and inevitably it looks too jello-y to me. I see too much of the, the wobble, and I turn it back off. And so as a result, I just don't end up stabilizing anything in post because it it doesn't feel right. And I know that digital stabilization can be good. I mean, when I see it in camera, what the iPhone does is incredible. Like f- I, the Im- the digital stabilization beyond the optical uh, just really takes it to the next level. They do a great job. You know what GoPro's doing with their digital stabilization is fantastic. There's a lot of really good stabilization out there. Other people use it in Final Cut. You just said you do. What am I doing wrong and why does my footage look like jello?
1: Well, I think... Just quickly mention about the iPhone. I wonder whether the iPhone knows what direction it's being pushed in as well. It might be the gyros in the iPhone. So, it may, so maybe it's getting the advantage from the hardware as well there. But so in Final Cut, I mean, it, it gives you, when you hit stabilisation, if you leave it on automatic, there's two types. There's I think one's called Smooth Cam and one's called Inertia. When you, if you just hit stabilization, don't do anything, Final Cut will look at the shot and try and pick which one it thinks is best. Now, Smooth Cam will be like if you've, say, you're, you know, you're drifting from left to right, it will try and smooth out that any sort of walking or stuff like that. Inertia mm-hmm. will try and, even if you've got like Z axis warping, it will try and mm-hmm. stabilize that, which is probably where you're getting that rippling effect from. So the first, so the first thing to try and check out is if it's not working for you just unclick the automatic drop down and sw- try one of the other ones smooth cam or it will have picked one of those two but you can switch it to the other one
0: All right I'll take a look
1: It'd be worth trying that and then like smooth cam if you then you there's then just one slider that you can slide up and down to you know do it to more or less degrees but I think sometimes as well what the stabilization doesn't do in final cut it's a really great stabilizer I think it's brilliant when it works it's amazing but sometimes the footage will just be a certain type of footage where it it you, it, it just can't handle it because it's... Uh, I think as well, different camera types. I think the more consumer you go, the worse the stabilization yeah. probably is because there's maybe rolling shutter or...
0: Yeah, I've always assumed a lot of the problem is, is rolling shutter being amplified or being turned into something much worse.
1: Yeah, I think it might be. I remember when... Um, when I used to work with a lot of 5D footage and things like that, the little camera shakes you would get, you would get this weird warping in the footage naturally. But that's the thing; it's not, it doesn't give you loads of fine grain control, the, um, the the smooth cam stuff. But it, yeah,
0: when it works, it's really great. What are some other things about your Final Cut workflow? I mean, so I was I watched some of your tutorials, and uh, I find them incredibly useful. Like one. One thing I'd love to get better at that is a, a big weakness in my final cut workflow that I felt I felt more comfortable with when I was in Premiere is audio mastering. So, uh you know, and I'm sure you don't do like a final master in your situation, but when there needs to be a layer of polish at the end like even just applying, you know, limiters and compressors and and balancing the audio at the final take, I often find that I don't feel like I'm doing the right thing. Like I'll create a compound clip of of like everything, and basically you know, apply a limiter to it, and that's the most that I know how to do. What are some good rules of thumb as far as dealing with audio? Because you're you're not round tripping right, and I should define that. Like a lot of the way that I would do it before in, in the Adobe world was round trip it out to Audition. Um, so there's a bit less of that flexibility.
1: So um, I think the first thing that could that would really help or fit in with your current workflow is do you do you use roles at all, audio roles? Not properly. <laughs> so, no, and that's fine because I think, you know, a lot of people will just use roles to color clips and just, as an, just, I guess, as a quick description, a role is you can define, you can tell Final Cut what kind of media a piece of audio is. So rather than putting it on a certain track to say, I'm having the music on these tracks or the effects on these tracks, you can have, you could say, all your effects are tagged with the effect role and all your music and all your dialogue. And then you can create as many other roles as you want. You can create new roles, VO or atmosphere, all those different things. Mm -hmm. And what that's going to do visually straight away is it gives different colors to the clips. So you can visually see what's what. I can see those are the effects, those are the things without, and things that aren't on tracks. What it then does as well is that when you open the timeline index on the left of the timeline, you can change the order of those roles and it will dynamically shift where the clips are in the timeline. So, so not, sorry, not, it won't put them out of time, but say you've got your music at the top of your timeline and your effects at the bottom and you want to swap those round. You can just swap the roles in the timeline index and they'll swap in the timeline of just switch places is sort of like so magic
0: a point of confusion for me was the difference between roles and it seems like they can't be treated like audio buses right like i can't say okay give me all my vo and apply a, a compressor to that and then give me my sound effects and apply a, you know,
1: whatever. no that's something i'd really like to have actually it would be really great if you could do that and i'd It'd be, yeah, that's a feature I've requested as well. But what you can do is, you know when you were saying you were compound clipping your entire timeline and then putting a compressor on? Mm-hmm. If you compound clip the timeline, you can, in the inspector, choose, when you expand your audio, you can choose to have it expand out into the separate roles. So your compound clip will have a separate audio layer for each of the roles that were inside, So, you would have an audio layer for all the music, bust it, mixed, essentially, it becomes a bus. It's all together. Yeah. So, straight away, that would be something for you where you could then just put a compressor, a vocal compressor on all the dialogue, or you could, you know, and you could say, oh, I'm just about to output, and then you just need to boost all the, or drop the music a little bit over the whole whole piece.
0: Is that the appropriate way to think about, like, the order of operations to, um, you know, basically lock the edit and then compounded uh, using roles Uh, like is that the intended workflow that at the end you do you generally do a compound
1: i don't because that's not the kind of weird i'm not generally outputting uh final final stuff but if if you know that that's what you want to do that's a good way of doing it and when you go back and but you can always step inside the compound clip and continue editing and then jump back out when you want to listen to it with all those um with those adjustments made
0: if that makes sense Okay. Yeah, I mean I do it. I just always feel like I'm not sure if it's what I'm supposed to be doing or not. Yeah. Just whereas, you know, when I'm doing the audition round trip something, maybe there's just a little bit of clarity in knowing that like okay, now I'm in a, a audio app, so everything in this stage is all audio. I don't there's something about that separation that I found a little easier to understand.
1: Yeah. Have you ever tried using Logic at all for
0: Round tripping? No, uh, because I'm in audition for all my audio stuff already. Like it's what I'm using for this to edit this podcast, for example. So, and and well, and actually, I don't have a current version of Logic. I bought Logic so long ago that it's I don't even know where that (laughs) that copy went. Um, But is it worth it? I mean, is it worth spending that time to? Get into that workflow.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't actually use it. I was just more out of interest because I know quite a lot of people use Logic. I don't get. I I'm not sure how many people are using it for, you know,
0: filmmaking or anything like that. Probably a lot less. But yeah, I'd like to know. I mean, I wish they would lean into that. I really would. I want it to be that film tool that that I can treat it the same way as I treat Audition. Someday, maybe it'd be nice. Yeah,
1: because it takes Final Cut XML as well, so you can just sort of load an XML straight into it. Mm-hmm. And actually, one other benefit of having audio roles as well is that one it's a visual thing. Two, it lets you reorder your timeline and stuff like that, which is great. But then when we send stuff out to you know to a sound mixer, we we use a program called extra Pro. You just export an XML. It goes into extra Pro and creates an AAF to you know that they can open in the sound mixer, and it automatically mm-hmm. orders everything based on based on the roles you've created. So I can be In inverted commas, as messy as I want in my timeline, I'm not having to meticulously lay everything out on different tracks because they're all just tagged with roles. And but when it gets converted into a track based timeline for the mixer, it all comes in. And it's really funny the amount of emails I've had from (laughs) sound mixers saying, Oh, thanks so much. This is the neatest timeline I've ever had, and it was so
0: well divided out. And I kind of think, Yeah, okay, I
1: didn't really do anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, a practical thing to to think about too is like when you're when you're dealing with clients and you're going back and forth, and uh, you know something I run into is this feeling of that stage of like when you're locking your edit and you're about to hand it off, and then a change comes through and you need to start messing with what was supposed to be locked. Is there a, a best practice that I don't know about of like do you do you ever really hit like a true Picture lock where you feel like it, nothing actually will change beyond here because I feel like there's never a final like renaming files final 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 export three.
1: I think yeah, I think if you ever name a file final, you're always going <laughs> to have doomed. to add another final at the end. And, 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 and yeah. I don't know. I think I the way I personally work is say I'm doing like a job for Mercedes and I've got a sixty second edit or something. I have kind of sequential cut numbers. You know, every time I'm doing what I feel is like a major change, I'll duplicate the sequence and I'll be working in a new version. Um, I don't ever call it final or anything. When I'm uploading and sending to clients, they'll get, you know, cut 23 or something. Just so that I keep those numbers the same as in my edit. That's what I sent to the client just so I can cross-reference you know and easily find what they're talking about
0: and are you duplicating projects to kind of track changes like how do you, how do, you do sort of yeah change tracking management
1: yeah if I was making a, a big change and you know we've always changing something later someone might say oh do you remember when we used to have that close up and we cut from this to that I can go back and you know I can go back and look at what that was and, and pull it across into a new edit or into the current edit, it's kind of a personal judgment call on when I create a new thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not I'm not creating a new I'm not duplicating my sequence every time I add three frames. Yeah, and and I think now especially because it's so easy, to kind of swap clips around in Final Cut and not mess up all the audio. I wouldn't necessarily be duplicating my sequence as much now I don't think because say I've just swapped I've moved these group of shots over there it's so simple for me to move it back and it and it not be any work that I didn't really need to make the duplicate it's often you know often if I'm trying something new out or it's a new approach I would definitely every time new client comments are coming in obviously I would definitely be creating a new version then so if you know if the client has seen version 3 then when they feed back and say we need more time on this or whatever, I would uh, I'd, I'd obviously be duplicating so I've got versions back. I think you just don't ever want to come unstuck because people will change their minds and you don't ever want to get to the point where you've
0: actually destroyed something that,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I get near that point all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, it can, it can be easy to just sort of like bury yourself in a, a, a rat's nest of uh, layered... Um, compound clips or I don't know. There's, there's all sorts of ways I've gotten myself into trouble and just learning those best practices. I mean, this goes back to even like when you first learn how to use a computer, if you miss the step of learning how to name your files properly, uh, you, you're in for a lifetime of pain and, uh, and hurt because like it, just those sort of basic life skills, it's like, you know, learning to do the laundry. If you don't know how to, sort and take care of your projects, like everything else becomes such a struggle and things that you hear other people doing easily that seem like trivial to them, but you'll be looking at it and just wondering like, well, what's what's wrong with me that I'm struggling so hard on these, Issues that nobody else seems to have. A lot of it can just be basic file management stuff. Just knowing where to find things. And I'm, you know, you kind of need to relearn it for each app. So I'm always still looking for, you know, what am I doing wrong in Final Cut? What am I not aware of that the app could be doing for me if I just sorted my files properly? So things I've seen you do and you your tutorials is leaning into. Say favorites within your assembly stage, so that uh, the the way the way that I saw you do it was you are you're almost doing assembly outside of the timeline, uh, just all within the I, I don't know what that area is called, like the clip management. Yeah, the area browser where you yeah, uh, like what's the best way to describe how you think, approach that sorting? Yeah, I think just to go back to your general point there, I think
1: that's one thing that separates someone who can edit. Or someone who edits to someone who is who calls themselves a professional editor. I think you you know, when you're an editor, a client is relying on you to to deliver something. And if someone asks me, says, Oh, you remember that shot when such and such happens? I really, Mm. you know, if it takes me more than ten seconds to find that shot, then I haven't really organized it well or, you know, and you know, often sometimes things get lost or whatever, you know. But really, you need things to be organized in a way that you're sort of accountable for where stuff is and for mm-hmm. it's not good enough to say, Oh, I don't think we have that. <laughs> you know, you, you've got to be able Without to, checking. Yeah, because yeah. you know, someone might, you know, they'll, they'll, make you look for it and then it will be there somewhere maybe. But in terms of my pro, it's maybe easier if I just talk you through the process of what I do when I bring in, you know, raw rushes. So um, everything, I would start by, yeah, I'd bring in like a day's worth of rushes, they all get dumped in. The first thing I do, I utilise rejects and favourites quite a lot. So what those are, first stage would be, I would just skim through, I use the film strip view a lot in Final Cut, because I just, it's it feels, uh, rather than looking at like a list view of clip names, having it in film strip view where I can use the skimmer to skim over and see stuff, I just kind of feel, once I started using that, it just opened my whole world up like I was taking blinkers off, you know. I'm not just Mm. locked down to seeing that frame at that time. I can see what's before and after and stuff. So the first part of the process I'll skim through and I'll reject everything before action and after cut, anything that's clearly 100% unusable, you know. All the clapperboard stuff, everything when the camera's been put on the floor afterwards, and I just reject that with the delete button. Uh, and that just means all of that stuff is gone. It's not deleted because with the one shortcut, I can bring it back up and see all those rejected parts of the clips, and they've got little like, red red lines on them
0: to show which parts you've rejected. So that's a really nice yeah, I think way. This was the first thing I, I saw you doing that I was like, "Oh, I'm I, that. I will do that. That's a thing I'm going to pick up right away." Yeah,
1: because it's like you. You're straight away. It's really easy to do. It feels a little bit like you're. a deleting a clip but you know you can always get back to it you can just change the view to show all clips and then it'll show you everything whether it's rejected or not and you can see the sections that you've rejected so that's really handy so I or sometimes an assistant will go through and reject all the stuff that's clearly unusable so that's the first stage and then the next part is I'll often divide things out into scenes uh, and sometimes I use keywords for this uh, and I'll just say like okay these first five shots these are all from the kitchen so I'll just grab them and chuck them on the kitchen keyword and then right, these next five shots these are all in the bathroom I'll tag those and then these are all from the garden so really really quickly and really broadly grouping things out so I've got a list of keywords on the left and I can just click like right bathroom shots where are they bam hit the bathroom hit the kitchen hit the garden and I'm just seeing the shots that are from those scenes occasionally as well I'll I'll add notes in as well because if you add notes you can just start typing garden kitchen or football and it will anything you've tagged with those notes will show up so that's sort of rejecting the stuff I don't want grouping the stuff grouping everything into sort of categories and then the next part is generally is when I go through and select everything and I kind of However much, however boring everything, you know, stuff is, you kind of need to watch everything through as, we, you know, from an editing point of view. you I doubt you have that luxury when you're a YouTuber and you're turning stuff around. You'll probably have to fly through it a lot quicker, which you can also do in Final Cut. Uh, but yep, yep. yeah, just, you know, watching stuff through at real time is is really handy for the type of work I do. So I'll go through and I, you know, I'm using JKNL to, to play, stop, and, you know, fast forward and rewind. And then you press in you press out around the bit that you want and you hit f to favorite it now in the just a bit of context for how i used to work and how most people work in track based editors you create first things first you create string outs which would be instead of a keyword with all the bathroom stuff you'd create a timeline with all the bathroom stuff on or a timeline with all the stuff from a certain scene for example and then you would load that into the viewer, and you'd you'd go through, and in selecting, you would be adding your favorite bits to the timeline. So you would come up with a timeline of selected clips. Uh, now, I do all of this in the browser. So I'm going through, and I press in and out, and I press F to favorite, and that gives a little green section on the clip, and it shows me the part of the clip that's favorited. And then you can just switch the view to show me just my favorites. So instead of having a timeline of clips that are the favourite clips, I can have them all in the browser and I can jump back and forth between views. I can say, show me my favourites of the bathroom, click on bathroom, show me the favourites, and it'll show me just my selected clips from the bathroom scene. But then I can also come back and show me the stuff I didn't select. Or, you know, I can very quickly be jumping between
0: different selections and categories. I'm sorry, I don't know if that, does that sound... No, that totally, that totally makes sense. One, one thing I run into with it, like a challenge of applying that to my workflow is that uh, clips aren't that neatly organized. So a lot of the time, one shot, one clip will have multiple usable moments in it. And I've never known about what to do about setting multiple in and outs to the same clip. Uh, So that's when it gets easier for it to be in a sequence, because then you know, like especially for events, right? Uh, You'll just roll, and you've got thirty minutes of video, and you need to go through all those thirty minutes and find all the in and outs. Is there a way to do that uh, that is compatible with what you are describing?
1: And when you say find all the in and outs, do you mean find the bits that you want to select, the bits that you are kind of yeah, find the good bits from a long clip? Well, you can just go through and add multiple
0: favorites on one clip. Okay, so I, go in, so I go in, out, favorite, and then I go in, out, favorite on the same clip.
1: And when you're doing that, you don't need to press stop. You press in, out, F, and then keep it playing in, out, F. And then if you want to extend right. that out point, you could press out and F again. So you can really be doing it. it. This is one of the first things that grabbed me in Final Cut. You can really be working very fast and yeah. and doing those favorites. And then if you switch the view in the browser to show just my favorites... Then you're just looking at those favorited clips, and they'll all sort of appear like they're separate clips, but they're from the larger clip. It's just showing you the favorited moments.
0: And then w- when you, there's an option to playback continuous that you showed, where yep. the, they can just play in sequence. So if you watch that, you you know, if you've done a good job and you don't have. Multiple, like say for an event, if you just play those back, you might kind of be <clears throat> watching the video uh, more or less. You know, if you've if you've selected some some nice stuff, you just play back in that browser area, and without having a sequence yet, there still is no sequence. You're kind of watching your edit, approximately.
1: Yeah, or you're watching. Yeah, you're watching all those bits, and then if you want to, you can just uh, apple and highlight them all and dump them on a timeline if you want to put them on a timeline. Or if, you know, if a director wants you to export a timeline of stuff so they can look at it later, you can turn those favorites into a timeline very easily. Uh, The other thing is, if you've, there's kind of, there's different ways of ordering your clips in the browser as well, using different bits of metadata. So often when we get a sound from set, once it's all synced up, the sound engineers often encode the scene and take metadata on the sound files and that with a, you know, a, a program we've got will pair it with the video files so in the inspector the clip will say scene 12 take 4 scene 12 take 5 and you can then group your um, you can group your things in the browser browser by scene so even if scene one was shot at the end of the day and scene two was shot halfway through the day if you group by scene assuming you've got that scene metadata applied uh, it'll order the clips in the scene order that they're supposed to be in the film. So if you've got that and then you do your favorites, you could say order this by scene, show me my favorites and now play through and that'll play through so cool. all that stuff. But and but the advantage it has over being in a timeline is that I can just at any moment without having to open sequences, I can say oh now I just want to see the stuff in the bathroom or I just want to I could type in scene 1 and I just want to see scene 1 or I want to open it up and not see my favorites. Maybe the director says, oh, you've missed a bit. There was a better bit earlier. You can just, you don't have to go back through these sequences. You can just change the thing, the stuff you're viewing based on metadata, which is really great i i love this method
0: and you know i i really hope someone can someone get this uh clip through to casey list and make sure he hears it and then casey tell me if this makes sense or not because like i kind of want it to he's always my reference point of like this is who i want to get to get it uh to be able to apply these things um because like it it sound it might sound complicated because you just said a lot of words in a row but those concepts i mean they make they make a lot of sense to me as a uh, uh logistically like this is the approach to take and once you can kind of get over some of the technical final cut words uh, i think you know it can yeah. really help speed up your process
1: if you've got those two video uh, there's two sort of particular demos i've done one about music videos one about commercials if you've got those that you can stick in the show notes it's so much easier to see it described sure. you know i mean right now i'm just sort of pointing in the air assuming that everyone can see me pointing at <laughs> yeah. parts of the interface yeah, I see but <laughs> in my mind yeah, so it's worth taking a look at those. Because once these, what I found with everyone at our company who's sort of come to round to using Final Cut is that you kind of, especially it's harder to learn Final Cut if you're already an editor. Like if, if I show someone Final Cut who has never done any kind of editing at all, they just get it. They're like, okay, cool, that's how it works. Whereas right. if you're trying to show it to someone, this was it was me included as well when I first started at it. If you someone who knows a track based way of editing, it's like this isn't editing. Editing doesn't work this way. It's really hard. One of the owners of the company here, he loved the thing I've just described to you about favoriting. He loved that and started favoriting and was like, right, I'm going to do a job in Final Cut, and he would favorite and love it. He was like, oh, this is so fluid and it's so fast to favorite, and then he would get to the timeline, and he, for, at that point. He ha- it hadn't clicked for him, and he just couldn't, and he had to send it back to Final Cut Seven and and do the edit. And he did that two or three times over right. on jobs. He's like, right, I'm starting this one in ten,
0: and eventually <laughs> it clicked for him. Now he just like he loves yeah. all of it. Yeah, I, and it depends how that like how does the magnetic timeline feel to you emotionally? Because when I first saw it, I was like, yes, like this feels right. But I can see how other people wouldn't. Right? It's not it's not necessarily completely obvious how it's going to be useful for everybody. But I loved it myself.
1: Yeah, and I think I think if you just if you haven't you if you've used the different if you use the normal track based system before it doesn't make sense to begin with it really doesn't. Yeah. But now, once once it clicks and it really does click, it's like you know it's it, it's a learning curve, and then suddenly it suddenly works for you, and you and you're like, oh, I get it, and you can just throw stuff around and be really quick. You're not yeah. messing stuff up and destroying things in your timeline. And once you know it and you
0: know the way it works and the way click connections work, it's just, it's really fast. I, was say, I just want to clarify, this isn't all a, a big ad for Final Cut. I mean, great work happens in Premiere. Like you, you know, Avid is still very widely used. Like these are powerful tools.
1: We've got people here who use Avid and Final Cut as well. And it's like no one, really, no one should know and no one will know what you've edited it and when it's up on the screen. The on, The only thing they could ever identify what it was cutting is if you've got some media offline and they can tell what the media offline logo looks like. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah. It, yeah, so all these things, it's really about what works best for you. And this is just what I find works best for me. Uh, and what I quickly really wanted to say about working fast is that it's not always about just about working quickly to get work done and finished quicker. That is obviously a benefit sometimes. But if something is simpler to do, like if we want to move scene two and swap it with scene seven and there's all this complex audio work and in a normal track based editor, I would have to really, it would take time to move those two things around. But the fact that it can do something like that an action like that fairly quickly, and the other might be some tidying up to do, it opens you up to more creative things because you don't want to be in a position where you're arguing not to do something because it feels like it's going to be a lot of work. Right. So some of this stuff is like, it's not that I necessarily finish an edit that much quicker, although I am quite fast. It's not that I always finish it quicker. It's that I have more time to do creative stuff. And I have more, it opens me up to to play with more things and try more things out and not say no to stuff. And,
0: you know. I love that. No, that's a great, it's uh, a great note to end on. Thomas, can you tell everyone where they're going to find your work and find your information online other than the show notes of course
1: yeah so if you go to if you want to have a look at any of the work that um we were doing at trim it's trim editing.com i've also got uh, my show reels on there but it's also if you go to thomasgrovecarter.com uh, you can find my stuff on there as well and then i'm kind of on twitter and in, uh, trim is on instagram as well and i'm on twitter and instagram thomas g carter
0: yeah i think that's kind of it awesome thanks again